My daughter got distracted by the two liter of Coke as she was leaving this morning, so I don't know what that says about my parenting, but uh, at least she, uh, at least she made it out. So, Acts chapter twelve, as we continue to go through the book of Acts together, just a reminder. And if you ever have a question about something like this or our our philosophy as a church on this matter, with having children's church, I know many of us grew up in situations where something like children's church wasn't the norm. You know, it wasn't offered as part of the Sunday morning worship. Here's my here's my philosophy on that. I definitely believe in parental freedom and parental uh, decision making. And so if you say, you know what, I would like my kids to stay with us, whether it's a little kid up through a fifth grader, I want them to be here during the sermon, do that. That's, that's your, your choice to do that. And that's a, sometimes we keep our kids with us during the sermon. Sometimes they go back to children's church, trying just to give them a variety of options. But for many kids, this is the time that they're able to come and they hear the Bible in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can make sense of, in a way that they can discuss and respond to. And so it can be a really great option. Other parents say, you know what, I would rather have my kids with us during the sermon. That's fantastic. We're in no way ever pressuring you to say your kid has to go or your kid has to stay. They do some great things in the children's church time. But equally so, it's good for kids to sometimes sit in here and be a part of what's happening. So just know that you have that, you have that opportunity. You have that option. Whatever works best for your family, go go with that. Uh, We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 12 this morning, and then next week, I know we've been going a chapter at a time. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Chapter 12 transitions us, as we get into 13, into Paul's missionary journeys. And so Acts takes on kind of a new feel when you get to chapter 13. And so we've been doing this for several weeks now. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And for the next several weeks following this week, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about rest. Now, you may say, I know nothing about rest. I work nonstop. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. What do you mean about rest? Well, we're going to look at what Scripture says about the idea of rest. And so we're going to be, if you know people in your life who are tired, exhausted, at the end of the rope, this could be a good chance to invite them to come to church. Say, let's, let's hear what the Bible says, what God has to say about rest. And we're going to have some fun things that are going to be a part of, of that sermon series. Our kids have been working on some different things. And so I'm excited about that. We'll take a little break in Acts, and then we'll pick back up and we'll finish it out through, uh, through the fall season going into Christmas. All right, Acts chapter 12 for this morning. And there are some notes on the back of your bulletin uh, that you can follow along as you as you'd like. But let's read this passage of Scripture. Uh, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. 
The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the, sh- in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get it, quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, It must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough, or after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, that's a great name right there, uh, Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, as we go back to verse 1, and we think from this chapter, what is God teaching us about being the church? What is God teaching us about what it looks like for his spirit to move? Look back in verse 1. It says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Now, just trying to make sure we understand who this guy is. This is not the same King Herod who was at work at the time of Jesus' birth. That was Herod the Great. This right here is someone named Herod Agrippa. And so Herod Agrippa was the grandson 
of Herod the Great. And through all of these situations that happened in the early part of the first century, Herod Agrippa had actually come to rule over the same amount of land that his grandfather ruled over. And so Herod the Great, Herod had a few sons, most of them were pretty lousy, and then his grandson Herod Agrippa comes to the throne and begins to take uh, ownership or or rule over this area of the world. And then it says in verse 2, he had James the brother of John. Now this can be confusing in the book of Acts because it mentions a couple of different Jameses. This James right here in verse 2 is James who was one of the disciples. James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, they were, they were brothers, they were followers of Jesus. This is that James. There's another James, James the brother of Jesus, who writes one of the books later in the New Testament, and he will actually become a very important figure in the book of of Acts after we get past chapter 13. And so when you read the New Testament, there are these names that are mentioned, and unless you're in the midst of a world history class or you've, you've read the, the Bible several times, it's, it's easy to get confused about who these people are. But it says here that Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And then when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. But then we read about how Peter is miraculously delivered from this imprisonment, how he is not killed the way that James was. And there's an important point we have to make here, and something that we need to see that impacts all of our lives. Here's the point. Is God still equally good when one person is killed or martyred and another person is allowed to escape and their life is spared. So, so two people are going to have an organ transplant. One person, it works perfectly. Their body is healed. They have 20 or 30 extra years of life. Another person, it doesn't work and they die soon after. Two people have, have a disease or have cancer. They both seek treatment, the same treatment. One person is healed, the other person dies soon afterward. Two people seek the same job, looking for work. One person is hired, the next person is not hired. How can it be that we seem to have these experiences? Nothing is said here that James and Peter lived any type of different life spiritually. They were both followers of Jesus. They were both committed to him. They were both a part of the work of the church. One is killed. One is released. And what we have to remember when we look at Scripture, when we think about how God works in our world, is that God's glory is sometimes shown in death, And sometimes his glory is shown in some type of miraculous escape or healing. His glory, his power, his strength is no different in those two situations. God has the power to sustain us at the moment of death, and God has the power to miraculously heal us from that illness. The reality is we don't know which of those might happen, and yet we still come before him and we still praise him. There's this scene in Daniel chapter 3, uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're, thrown in the, they're going to be thrown in the fiery uh, furnace. Or if you have kids, it's actually Shadrach and Benny. But uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are th- going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. 
And in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17, they say that our God will deliver us. But even if he does not, we will not worship you, O king. We will continue to worship him. And it's that phrase, but if he does not, we will still worship him. So you go in for treatment and you say, my God is able to bring healing. My God is able to rescue me from this situation. God, my God is able to give me this job. But even if he does not, even if the healing that I want, even if the job that I want, even if the career that I want doesn't pan out the way I want it to, I will continue to worship him. And I will continue to lay my life before him saying, you are powerful enough to sustain and you are powerful enough to rescue. In 1858, at the age of 33, a man named John Patton left a very successful ministry in Scotland to go to the South Seas off the eastern side of Australia to do mission work. There was one problem about going to these islands is that they were inhabited by cannibals. The last missionaries that went to these islands had been eaten. So it hadn't gone very well for them. Uh, and, and so they had gone there, but Patton felt like he was being called, his family was being called to go uh, to these islands. And so they traveled there. Five months after they got to these islands, his wife and five-month-old child died of a fever. He said about this, he said, I felt their loss beyond all conception in that dark land, but feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. I do not pretend to see through the mystery of such events, but this I know and feel, that in light of such events, it becomes us all to love and serve our blessed Lord Jesus, so that we may be ready at his call for death and eternity. It's that phrase there, that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits. Sometimes James is beheaded, and sometimes Peter is rescued, but in both of those situations, God remains wise, he remains loving, and he remains able to sustain you in whatever you're going through. As we move on past this, we see that in Peter being released, it says in verse 8, or actually it says in verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel said. Then in verse 9, Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. And then look at, listen to verse 10. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then you get down to verse 12, 
When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. It also mentioned back in verse 5 that the people were praying. When Peter was in prison, when he needed the help, the people gathered together to pray. Then verse 13. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and the servant girl named Rhoda, Rhoda just means rose or rosebush, it was probably her nickname, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, sometimes when we read the Bible too quickly, we miss the humor that is intended by the author. Back in verse 10, When Peter is being rescued from prison, he passes by two trained Roman guards. The gate miraculously opens for him. And then when he gets to this house, he can't get past the little servant girl. So the the jail was no problem. The Roman guards were no problem. The gate on the jail, no problem. This 10-year-old servant girl, that's a problem. Um, We can all identify with this. You know, you take a big, strong construction guy or, or a big, successful businessman, and you put them with a two-year-old, they'll bring them to their knees. Like, you know, take your construction, take your business, and take on a two-year-old, you're going to lose to the two-year-old, you know, every time. If you want to really find out how strong, I'm reminded all the time, Amanda, as she takes care of the kids and does homeschool and stays with them, her job is a hundred times more difficult than my job, you know, because when you're deal with kids in that way, you know, a jail, breaking out of jail is no problem. Getting past a 10-year-old, that's going to be an issue. So I'm really not sure what the spiritual point is on that, but it's just a, it's just a funny part of, of the story. So, uh, so it says in verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Something about prayer that we need to see here. Sometimes when we think about the early church gathering together in prayer, we make them more than human. We make them think as almost like super Christians, so to speak. But notice here, they've been praying for Peter, but they're still surprised that it's him. So it almost sounds like they're praying for him, but they don't actually expect God to come through. They don't actually expect Peter to be rescued. And you wonder why this is the case. One possibility might be because they just saw James beheaded. And they thought, well, it didn't work with James, so it's not going to work with Peter. Has that ever happened to you when you were praying? You prayed for something, and it didn't work out, or it didn't happen the first time, and you say, well, I don't expect it to happen the second time, so I'm just not going to pray, or I'm not going to pray about it in the same way because God didn't do it the first time. It may have been that he answered your prayer the first time in a different way than you expected. That God sustained James while he was being martyred. And then when it comes to Peter, God says, pray to me that I will rescue him, and I'll, and I'll do that. But the people don't seem to be expecting that that will happen. When we gather together to pray... Or when you pray for family members that you've prayed for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years that something would happen, and you say, yeah, but I prayed before and it didn't happen, but we continue to pray. And we continue to pray with expectation because it may be that the next time God works in just the way that he didn't work before. 
It's not this idea that God is flippant. It's simply the idea that he is too wise and too loving to err in anything that he does or permits. And so we trust him, but we pray with expectations because we don't know how God's going to respond to all of these situations that come. Verse 16, poor Peter is left outside. So he escaped the guards. Now he's going to get captured because he can't get inside. Uh, Verse 16, Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, now remember, this is a different James because the other James has been beheaded. He's been martyred early on. This is the James brother of Jesus who was a leader in the church. And the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Something about Herod that needs to be uh, pointed out here is it seems like, just like his grandfather, every time Herod couldn't get his way, he just had people killed. He didn't like the Christians, so he has James beheaded. He doesn't like what the Roman soldiers did, so he has them killed. Every time he can't get his way, he just has someone killed. He uses his power, and he'll do anything, even destroying the people around him, just to protect his power. One of the things that Luke makes very clear in Acts is that the spread of the church, the spread of the church will not be by killing others, but by dying to ourselves. So we're supposed to see here a contrast between the Christians and Herod. Herod can't get his way, and so he kills someone. The Christians can't give their way, and so they give up their lives. They lay down their lives. And you know, there's something to be said in 2014 about that idea that if we can't get our way, it's tempting to use violence. It's tempting to use power. But scripture is very clear that the way that we follow the Lord is by following our Lord and dying to ourselves and saying we will not resort to violence. We will not resort to power plays. We will lay down our lives for the spread of the gospel. Then it says in the middle of 19, Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. Judea was where Herod went at the holidays. Caesarea was where he went to spend most of his time. So, uh, Judea was Bay St. Louis, and Caesarea was New Orleans, okay? So they, they lived there, but during the holidays or sometimes they went out to Judea. They went into the, the area where the festivals was going to happen. So it happened. So it says he went to Caesarea. This is where he spent most of his time, and he stayed there a while. Verse 20, he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. So if you think about the way the Mediterranean Sea is set up and how Judea is on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre and Sidon are just a little bit north and and kind of back to the west a little bit from where Herod's area was. So Herod didn't rule over Tyre and Sidon. He he wasn't ruling over these areas. These were semi-independent Roman areas at the time. But here's the way the relationship worked. Tyre and Sidon, they had the timber. Judea and Galilee, where, where Herod was, they had the food. 
And so they would often trade timber for food. They would go to Tyre and Sidon, get the timber, and take food and, 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 um, and bartering or trading for those things. But it says here that for some reason Herod was angry with the people there. So having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on Herod's country for their food supply. They had the trees. He had the food. They needed food a lot worse than he needed trees, apparently. And so they had to make peace with him. They had to figure out a way to get along. And it says in verse 21, On the appointed day when Herod was going to hear them, he came out wearing his royal robes. He sat on his throne, and he delivered a public address to the people. Now, there's a man named Josephus. From, from history, he wrote a lot of history of the Jewish people. And Josephus tells us that when Herod came out on this morning, he was wearing silver garments. And when the morning sun hit him, his garments glistened in the sun. So it almost looked like he radiated. So, you know, you think about the people who run with a particular colored garment on so you can see them. This is the idea of, of Peter. Or Peter, or people who wear a lot of jewelry and it glistens in the sun. This is the same thing going on with Herod. I think I said Peter, but I meant Herod. Herod was wearing this very elegant uh, garment so that people would look at him and be impressed by him. And it says, when they heard him talk, they shouted, This is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he was eaten by worms and died. I told James not to do too much with this section with the third through fifth graders. So if your third through fifth graders come home and talk about being eaten by worms, I had nothing to do with that. So I, I apologize. I don't know if he has worms over in the youth room right now, but uh, he was kind of back and forth on, on that one. So I'm not sure, not sure what happened. But uh, pretty, pretty crazy story. Uh, and Josephus tells pretty much the same story that Herod began to have these terrible stomach pains. And just a couple of days later, he... He died as a result of, of what happens here, the judgment that, that was brought on him by God. But there are so many things happening in this situation that we need to think about from our perspective. Think about the contrast between these two scenes, okay? Here's Herod sitting on his throne, everybody looking up at him. He's dressed in the very best clothing. He's speaking down to the people. He holds all of the power in the situation. And then on the other side, imagine the Christians gathered together, multiple ones of them gathered together in a room, kneeling before the Lord, not sitting on a throne, probably not dressed in the best clothes. There's Herod dressed in the very best clothes. Herod is speaking down to these people from a position of power. The Christians are speaking up to God, acknowledging that he has all the power. Do you see the contrast that Luke is setting up between these two scenes? And it says that they spoke to, when Herod spoke, they said this is the voice of a God and, and not of a man. And he didn't rebuke or resist that. What do we learn from Herod's situation here? Uh, a couple of things. The first is, beware of the danger of power or the danger of people looking at you 
and admiring you. Think about the reasons that people admired Herod right here. They admired him because of his clothing, because of his outward adornment. They admired him because of his intellect, what he was speaking, how well he spoke. They admired him because he held the power. He had the money. Okay? Now think about the 21st century. Why are people admired? They're admired because of their possessions, their outward adornment. That was nice. Um, They're admired because of, of the clothing, the things that make people look at them. They're admired because of their money, because they have that type of money. They're admired because of their intellect, because they speak well or they're smart. Now, what's the problem with those things? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with physical possessions. There's nothing wrong with intellect. There's nothing wrong with being in a position of authority. The problem is when we confuse those things and we elevate ourselves to a position that's not appropriate. And what we have to remember is that physical possessions, intellect, authority, all of those things will go away. All of those things will pass. Brilliant men will no longer be able to think well. Rich people will no longer have their money. People in authority will no longer have their positions. Those sort of things pass away. The one thing that remains is God's glory and God's word. And so anytime we take glory for ourselves, we forget who God is and what he has done in our lives. Here's a couple of other dangers to watch out for. First, be very careful about ever saying that you are above a particular sin. The world is littered with people who said, I'll never do X, or I'll never fall into that, or there's no, longer, no way I'll ever get involved with that. Anytime we say that, we run the risk of putting ourselves above a certain sin. Pastors who say, I'll never fall into adultery. Or business people who say, I'll never be caught lying or cheating. Or spouses who say, I'll never be caught with someone else. Anytime that we get ourselves in this mindset that I'm above or beyond or I can never fall into that, we begin to put ourselves above God. And we have to humble ourselves and realize that every day we are dependent on God. We are dependent on his work in our lives. On the flip side, be really careful about putting someone else on a pedestal. Someone who has money, someone who has intellect, someone who has a position of authority. And we put them on a pedestal and we almost put them out of reach of particular sins. And you know what happens when you put someone on a pedestal? Oftentimes, it comes crashing down. We think, wow, that person, look at them. They can never struggle with this. They can never have this problem. They're never going to fall. And what ends up happening? They fall. Be very, very cautious about that. Even in church, this type of thing happens. You look at certain pastors who are popular, who are famous in the world, or you see certain people in a church and you look up to them and say, there's no way that person will ever have a problem. But we do. And the reason we do is because we're not God. We, we, we don't make the problem that Herod had here and we realize I'm not God. I am susceptible to those sins. I'm susceptible to those temptations. We have to be so careful about putting ourselves or putting someone else above sin. 
And what we have to remember is that what Herod battled with right here is what all of us battle with. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even though we don't want to see ourselves in Herod's spot, all of us are guilty of that. Because all of us in some way have taken God's glory and diminished it by putting ourselves at the center of the story. And we take from God's glory. We say, God, I can handle this. Or I want people to look at me. Or I want the power. Instead of giving that back to God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Just as Herod experienced death here, this is the result. This is the outcome for everyone who takes from God's glory. But the end of Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The fact that even though we deserve death, even though we deserve punishment, even though we deserve to be eaten by worms, as Herod has happened to him in this story, Christ, because of his mercy, and because of his grace, and because of him him experiencing that death for us, we have life, and we have hope, and we have forgiveness. Let's be a people who never say, I'm above or beyond or outside of sin, but let's be a people who bring ourselves before the Lord and say, God, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your salvation. And may we walk together in unity as we follow him. As we come to the end of of our time this morning, I want to pray for us. Then we're going to have a time of singing, singing a hymn about walking with the Lord. If God's working in your life in some way, if something about this morning has struck you, has struck in your heart, and you just need someone to pray for you, we'll be here to pray for you. If maybe you've had a situation where God didn't answer a prayer or answered it differently than you expected, and you just need to pray and call out to Him and say, God, I believe that you are too loving and too wise to err in anything that you do or permit, just confess that before Him during this time. However God is working in your life, I just pray for you to respond at this time.